Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, a podcast of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. In the spring of 2020, we created this podcast in response to a need to connect in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and to explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm Sarah Valenti, visiting assistant professor at the School of Arts and Humanities at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara Einstein Raven, Professor of Holocaust Studies. Today's episode is about significant events that took place in the year 1937. To see copies of the images we'll discuss throughout this episode, please download the Primary Sources Guide for this episode on our website at ackerman.utdallas.edu forward slash virtual dash outreach. Hi, Dr. Romer. How are you? Hi, Dr. Valente. I'm doing very well. Good to be here again with you. Thank you so much. We're nearing the end of the semester, and here we are to talk about the year 1937. Yeah, 1937 is, you know, in lots of ways, um, when we think about it, it's a year in which many things happen, but in other ways, we kind of sandwich it between 1936 and 1938, meaning between, you know, the the Olympics on the one side, maybe, and the beginning of the Spanish um, Civil War, and then on the other side, of course, uh, Kristallnacht. And so, what is it that we single out for 1937? What is the, the one or the the couple of defining moments for us here. That's really a question that uh, you and I had talked a great deal about. Absolutely. We went back and forth. You know, there's so much that actually happened, especially with uh, the Spanish Civil War taking place. We have FDR in the United States signing a Neutrality Act in 1937. Uh, We have Italy withdrawing from the League of Nations in Europe. We have Germany opening a Buchenwald concentration camp. And then, of course, we also have Japan invading China proper. uh, And so, so many different events for us to choose from. And ultimately, do you want to talk about no, what we ended no, up choosing. No, no, of course, we, of course, <laughs> we, we will give it away. But, you know, it's it's an endless list because yeah. we can throw in a good number of others on top of it. There's this, you know, other thing that you could mention, and that is the, uh, the very, you know, powerful, but also very damning and very dangerous uh, Nazi propaganda exhibition, The Eternal Jew. Yes. There's uh, that you know goes around in in 37, and one can wonder why it does at this particular moment. Um, others might just think quickly of the Hindenburg disaster as another one, or we could kind of go into this year from yet another door, and through the Pope Pius um, encyclical with burning worries. This is Pope Pius XI speaking out against the quote-unquote harassment of the Catholic Church. So there's a lot in here, really confusing stuff. But I think we have, you know, many ways thought that one of the most defining or most interesting events for us is actually what has now become known as the rape of Nanjing. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we're going to make a good case for that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So the reason, you know, even though this event actually happens at the right at the end of the year, so we're talking about December 13th 
is when the first Japanese troops began to arrive in the city of Nanjing. And this is the moment where we see the pillaging and killing uh, happening throughout that, that city. And it is a really interesting moment, however, because as the Japanese troops are arriving in the city of Nanjing, uh, where very quickly the soldiers and the civilians alike begin to be hunted down because they're really left to their own devices in that city. Uh, and we have here, Angie can read for us actually, to set the scene of what was happening on this day, we will listen to Angie Simmons, our research assistant, reading an article from the Times that really describes this moment in December of 1937, and this is titled, A Doomed Capital. The streets of Tokyo are full of lights and triumph. The streets of Nanking, flame-lit, are full of death and fear and destitution. The Japanese forces converging on the apex of the Yangtze salient have met with little serious resistance before the Chinese capital, and the issue of the struggle now proceeding under its walls can hardly be in doubt. The full story of the Chinese collapse is not yet known. The ordeal to which the defenders of Shanghai were subjected before they were dislodged was as severe as any troops have ever had to undergo, and they seem to have had little stomach and little ammunition left for further fighting. The fresh drafts brought up to defend Nanking were mostly raw material from the farther provinces and gave a poor account of themselves. Several successive lines of impregnable, but possibly imaginary, fortifications failed to check the impetus of the invaders. An intensive bombing culminating yesterday in a ruthless onslaught on Pukau, which was crowded with refugees, hastened the tempo of the retreat. Another contributory cause of the debacle may well have been the conviction, unavowed perhaps at headquarters, but almost certainly shared throughout the Chinese ranks, that it was not only impossible to hold Nanking, but dangerous to try to do so. So as we hear in this article, there is, of course, this contrast that appears at the very onset, right? The very beginning of the article talks about the triumphant Tokyo and the destitute Nanking, which sets the stone of this moment of total war as it was experienced by the Chinese people. And as it says in the article that the Chinese people have provided very little serious resistance. And we know that in this moment, in fact, the commander of the Chinese um, army had actually left the city and left the city, the citizens to really fend for themselves. And this is the moment where something really interesting actually takes place. This is where we see the Nanking safety zone coming into being. So this is, you know, just to, if we think about 37, we think about Nanjing, then, you know, what we're trying to kind of track here a little bit is at which point are societies, you know, close or closing in on these tipping moments? Mm -hmm. At which point do they descend in, into forms of violence that even within the context of their own cultures had been unprecedented? And that's most clearly the case for the Japanese. Um, that I think who had encountered far more severe resistance in Shanghai, and then I think in a retaliatory manner, um, descend into a form of violence that even, even at this point had been unprecedented. But like you said, it was so unprecedented that even for many of the other Westerners, mm -hmm. um, it forced them or compelled them into action that in lots of ways also is perplexing insofar as they came together establishing 
this so-called safety zone that allowed at least a good number of Chinese individuals to escape and to be rescued. And one of the kind of strangest or most perplexing individuals in all of this mm. is a man called John Ray, who is to this day admired and, and greatly respected uh, businessman who worked for one of the larger German companies, Siemens AG, but also a Nazi, mm -hmm. uh, who was in the midst of establishing this safety zone. So what do we do with an individual like that in the midst of all that? I think it, it, it's difficult because on the one side, we see a society descending here, Japan, Japan into a form of violence that hadn't existed, the Western world being appalled. And that includes our otherwise Nazi um, John Rape. So mm -hmm. in many ways, I find this kind of intriguing because it does still show us something that what had just happened with the Japanese still had not quite on the whole scale happened in the same manner with mm -hmm. everyone in Germany. And that being a Nazi abroad and being a Nazi in the Third Reich at home were also still two different things. In other words, we might be looking here at an individual who subscribed to some of the ideals of Hitler, Germany, but not necessarily to all in the same manner. So it, it's uh, it, to this day, I think there's a bit of, a, of an unease always when we think about celebrating Ray because of his commitment to the Third Reich, to leadership. After all, he works for a very powerful company that mm -hmm. became one of the backbones of, of the Third Reich, Siemens. Uh, but then also being the defender of the innocent and of the of the of the of the those in need here in, in the city of Nanjing. What do you think about that, Dr. Valente? I, I think it's a very complex um, moment that we see happening because on the one hand we have, and this is one of the images in the primary sources that we have selected at the headquarters of the safety zone, we have the committee, which is made up not only of him, the German Nazi, but we have the Russian Tartar, we have an Austrian, we have a, a white Russian, we have also a representative from the American um, church. And we have all of these individuals coming together for a very humanistic um, endeavor. And not only that, but one that I find even more perplexing is that John Ray becomes one of the first ones to actually begin to note and record the atrocities that are actually occurring. He wants to get this information out as soon as possible. Um, and we have, you know, even some primary accounts, one that I have selected to bring up for our listeners that I would like to share is by actually a young woman who was working with the university because as we know, the safety zone itself uh, included parts of the Nanjing University. Uh, and so it encompassed parts of the American embassy and these very important you know, buildings that, that, that were in that same region. And so these uh, university students and faculty were very much involved also in this effort to record. And so she writes down, um, right as it's happening, this is coming from Zhen Shu Fang, who was a Chinese national who was working together with the safety zone. And she writes for us on two occasions. The first one is on Friday as it's happening. And she writes this in the, docu in the diary documenting her experience saying, now it is midnight, I'm sitting here to write this diary and I cannot go to sleep because tonight I have experienced the taste of being a slave on a toppled country. This kind of slavery life is very difficult to endure. If I were not struggling for the survival of our Chinese race, I could commit suicide. These several days I have been frustrated to death, 
having no idea what's going on with the war, no communication with the outside world. Embassies have no Westerners left. Not many Americans are here and they're helpless. The refugees come here to seek shelter and insist on coming in. It really made me angry to death. It's better not to let them in than see them being dragged from here. It is better not to see what happens to them outside. Each night outside, every place is burning. Why must Chinese people suffer like this? Today, several times soldiers went to the South Hill. I do not want to write anymore. When thinking about the Chinese people, I cannot help but feel heartbroken. Another boy was born today. And she goes on, you know, so this this first moment where it feels like there's no one there to help. But at the same time, in this next moment that she writes a few days later on December 21st, she will bring up the fact that there are these Germans there to, uh, willing to help. And she says, the Japanese soldiers dispatched here last night were for protection in name only. They came to change shift. Uh, Valdrin thought that the officer was was nice to send people to protect us, and in fact, he's resentful of losing face because no matter how we receive girls from the outside, the soldiers still come to take them away day and night. Um, and then she goes on to say, now the Westerners all see every inhuman deed and empty words, sweet words from the Japanese engaged in. Sometimes when the Japanese consulate, when, when this person went to the consulate to report the troops' bad deeds, um, they were never met with any seriousness. Fortunately, there's still two Germans here. And this is a moment that I find very perplexing because everything that Sen Shun Fang is depicting in writing, that that idea of you know having to suffer for the Chinese people, it, it, she, she already understands this is somehow kind of a racial, there's a racial complex to this war, uh, the idea that they're being targeted in some way. So there is a lot that, that to me, as I read this, I, I think about what we will later on read from accounts from Jews in Germany who are having that experience of the suffering under this tyr tyrannical um, government that is willing to to do all of these things. And of course, we know that in this year, Buchenwald was already open, the concentration camp where political prisoners were being sent to. So I find it enormously complex to try and in some way understand the deeds of this man, of John Rabe. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it, it just shows how complex um, human beings are and the moments in which we live in, 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 in what, you know, it's very difficult to say or to tell why he acted the way he did there and how he might have acted if he was, let's say, in Germany still, right? I think it's a very complex question for us to think about. No, indeed it is. But I think, you know, we, we picked this event also because in, in, in a certain way, one could say, both from the account that you just shared with us and from the response of the um, of those that were enacting the safety zone, what was unfolding in front of them required a response that was, you know, mm -hmm. new to them. In the one case, we have someone like Rabe and others move into action. Rape mm -hmm. otherwise was a businessman. Why would he have, you know, otherwise, you know, this is not normally what he would have done. Right. And on the other side, there's quickly a sense that this violence and the brutality that the Japanese soldiers are unleashing upon that city is of a scale that requires recording and documenting in order to mm. make it, you know, to preserve at least a memory of that. But in either way, it does still show that maybe on a certain way in 37, we're still, or so it seems possibly away from the type of violence mm. that would very quickly engulf all of Europe, 
in terms mm-hmm. of the war, and then in particular also um, erupt with, with the Holocaust. Or maybe not. How is it if we switch mm-hmm. back to Germany and look now at Spain and Guernica? Abs- absolutely. So there I think, you know, here we, we single out John Rape as a kind of, you know, bystander who's moved into into compassion and then acts, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of the Spanish Civil War, we have very early on the Germans, you know, quipping um, the Franco-fascists with the Condor Legion fighter group. It becomes mm-hmm. a way for them to try out their air force. Um, they are not the only ones. It becomes a little bit a kind of proxy war of sorts and so far as fascist Italy is also supporting Franco mm-hmm. and so is Germany, even though, though Germany's warned, you know, at first not to do this. Um, and then there are, you know, unleashing their military assets, in particular in this infamous um, air raid on the city of Guernica that is forever in our minds um, inscribed in, in our memories because of the famous painting. But here it's it's really the Third Reich, you know, not discerning any longer at all, thinking between, mm-hmm. you know, military combat and attack on civilians, but just attacking wholesale a city. So it's a new form of violence um, of sorts that we hadn't quite seen. You already mentioned the opening of Buchenwald, which in many ways we could kind of um, categorize as another possible stepping stones. But even the camps themselves are mm-hmm. kind of cl- slowly radicalizing because in certain ways we could say that early on the Nazis incarcerated those that they deemed politically dangerous mm-hmm. or opponents of sorts. While in 37 it starts to shift mm-hmm. and now under him, Himmler's guidance, increasingly people are also rounded up who are engaging in what's deemed asocial behavior, mm-hmm. criminals, habitual criminals, um, as well as increasing amounts of Roma and Sintis. In other words, the profile here is increasingly becoming um, one where people are classified as innately being criminals yes. or a socials or romanticity. In other words, we're moving toward a, a kind of more racialized mm-hmm. radicalization. And obviously, we, you know, behind all of that, we know that they're running this campaign, the exhibit on the quote-unquote eternal Jew that attracts about half a million visitors. So bad that Winston mm-hmm. Churchill even um, becomes aware of it and talks about how this kind of, you know, constant racism in Germany, the anti-Semitism is of potential danger and poses a great evils of racial and religious intolerance in his mm-hmm. mind. So there is, the, the grounds are shifting um, in, in ways in which, you know, we could see how then 38 could become what it will mm-hmm. become. But it's almost, I think, becomes more visible, or so we think, you and right. I, <laughs> by, by looking at it First, from the outside, meaning through the lens of China and through the lens of Spain, and mm-hmm. then kind of looking back at Germany. Is, is that a w- way of, of kind of thinking about 1937 in the end for us? I, I think so, absolutely. And especially with the case of Guernica, you know, as you already mentioned, the famous painting by Pablo Picasso, which, of course, he paints two months after 
the bombardment in the city took place uh, on April 26th. And there's an image that everyone can see in the primary sources um, document that we prepared. And when he paints this this image, um, not not the photograph. So we have the photograph of the actual attack, and now I'm talking about the the Picasso painting. Painting. When he paints this, of course, there is no way for him to know or foresee what the Nazis will actually do in the future years. You know, this total war against the Jews. But in the painting itself, it's really interesting to note that. Picasso largely focuses on the features of women as main characters, which I think, you know, if we think about, you know, what is changing, right? This idea of what what changes in 37 or are we seeing now a, a different kind of war starting to take place or a, a prelude to, to the Second World War? And if we look closely in the painting, we can see a woman with a dead child on the left-hand corner. We can see on the right-hand corner a woman trying to escape, another one with her arms up in the air. So, you know, there are different interpretations, obviously, to the painting, but it's really interesting to see that the women and the babies are becoming, you know, the 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 focus of this image, where where it shows that this bombardment by the Condor Legion um, at Guernica is a shift, it's a change that is occurring, uh, and it is depicting this attack that happens not only against an army, it's not an attack against the armed uh, uh, soldiers, but it is against the women, the children, even the market. We see little animals being depicted, showing the, the total loss of war in a, a different kind of war that is about to take place. And uh, that, to me, I think is also, you know, if we think about what is changing in this year, I think that is already uh, almost a prelude to what is to be expected in the future again. Picasso wasn't a prophet. He couldn't foresee what was to happen. But in many ways, it really is remarkable that that is the focus of the painting as well. No, it is very stunning, in particular, if we kind of line it, align it again with what we just discussed about Nanjing. I mean, Nanjing mm -hmm. is for a good reason, remember, today as a rape exactly. of, of Nanjing because of the extreme brutality and violence um, enacted against women. And if we kind of foreshadow here a little bit, if we are trying to discern the kind of shifting of mm -hmm. grounds in terms of what becomes plausible and conceivable, the, the very moment when the Germans are descending into, into the beginnings of the Holocaust is usually where mm -hmm. we think about the first four weeks after the attack on the Soviet Union, when precisely they now do not any longer just battle with troops or men, but where the killing squads start to kill women and children. And so that's when we, we arrive at this kind of genocidal mm -hmm. threshold of sorts. And we see that that threshold, so to speak, if we wanted to put it that way, in, breached in one way in Nanjing mm -hmm. and then in a different way, um, again, in Spain, that of, of sorts, you know, you think always when you look forward in, in terms of what is plausible at this point for an army to do or for a nation to, to become? And I think with both Nanjing and with the Spanish Civil War, the possibilities have just become further radicalized. Obviously, the Nazis will go far beyond any of mm -hmm. this, but in many ways, 37, together with the significant changes that also I hope are happening within the Third Reich, are therefore, I think, sometimes more decisive than we give this year credit for when we kind of wait for 38 to come around to kind of move our narrative along 
and not always quite sure from the perspective of the Holocaust what exactly we want to single out in, in terms of the year of 1937. Absolutely. And so there are these atrocities that are happening really far away from each other in China, in Spain, that we don't necessarily always put together um, in terms of, of, you know, when we think about the Third Reich. But in fact, you know, if I, if I could conclude with, with one little anecdote here that I have heard many times is that when Pablo Picasso was already in France, in Paris, uh, he was living in occupied Paris and a Gestapo officer barged into his home um, and he sees there a reproduction of the photo uh, of the mural Guernica and he asks Picasso, did you do that? And then Picasso looks at him and replies and says, no, you did. And so here we have something that we would not necessarily connect. You know, it's almost like these dots that we don't usually see a connection, but in fact actually plays a much um, more important role than we would uh, think otherwise if we didn't, you know, come from the outsides to the to to the to the center of this of this topic. Very true, um, and I think therefore, in many ways, while we might have, you know kind of gone about 1937 in a slightly less predictable way, I, I do think that in many ways it is the Spanish Civil War and it is Nanjing that show us now a new form of violence or possibility of violence and brutality that maybe, you know, really points uh, forward in terms of what's feasible. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, though, you know, Hitler is at this point, 37, he has done significantly, um, you know, have made significant progress in terms of building up the German uh, army. Uh, he has mm -hmm. defied the Treaty of Versailles in numerous ways. And in one of his last kind of gatherings in November, um, he already outlines his future expansionist politics. So in lots of ways, this is really more and more a Third Reich um, at, the, at the beginnings of, of, of massive violence on a, on a European scale in terms of war, and also I think already one that in other ways is, is thinking maybe not so much quite yet necessarily in terms of the Holocaust, but I think these attempts to classify you know, mm -hmm. individuals as habitual criminals or a social or to single out entire groups Mm -hmm. like the Roman Sinti, is already indicative of the kind of racialized war that the Third Reich will ultimately um, embark on. So I think, again, uh, I want to thank Dr. Valente um, and uh, Angie also for helping us along here and um, to kind of put this really together. But I think 37 was a bit of a challenge to us, right? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. We rest now comfortably. We're thinking that we've kind of made a good good case to single out those two events that in many ways um, are maybe at first a little counterintuitive when one thinks about 37, but hopefully um, have convinced our us and our listeners that there's uh, something to be looking at it in that way. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Romer. It was a pleasure talking to you about this year. And I look forward to 1938, which is also coming out today. So thank you go. very much. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with those interested in learning about significant events that happened during the early years of Hitler's Third Reich. 
To keep in touch with us, please follow us on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast or on Twitter at Ackerman Podcast. Stay safe and take care. Until next time. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Valencia with the help of Angie Simmons and Niels Romer, edited and engineered by Sarah Valencia.